Well, so you know, one of the great honors of my life was working for Rick Warren and Purpose Driven Ministries, where I was able to train over 10,000 churches and 30,000 church leaders as I traveled all over the United States and Canada speaking at various conferences. Now, I worked for Purpose Driven right at the height of Rick's best-selling book called The Purpose Driven Life. Now, I want to try to put into perspective for you a little bit just how much of a cultural phenomenon the book actually was. To be a best-selling book, you need to sell anywhere from five to 10,000 copies. Very few books in history have ever sold over 1 million copies. Yet at its peak, The Purpose Driven Life was selling over 1 million copies every single month. It's been over 70 weeks as the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list. It was absolutely phenomenal. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure exactly how much money Rick made off of all that, but by his own admission, it was a lot of money. And I'll never forget the staff meeting where he came in and Rick announced that he had made two big decisions about what he and Kay were going to do with all the money they had and all the fame that was being sort of thrown his way, or how he described it, what am I gonna do with this influence and affluence that God has given me? Now, I've shared with you in the past some of the decisions that he and Kay made about the money. First was not to change their lifestyle from what it had previously been, so keep the same house, same car, et cetera, et cetera. Second was to stop taking a salary from the church. Third was to pay back all 25 years worth of salary to the church. Fourth was to donate a lot of money to help fund a couple nonprofit organizations, primarily dealing with like AIDS and, and poverty. And finally, he started reverse tithing. In other words, he started giving 90% of his income to the church and living off the remaining 10%. Now, according to Rick, what to do with the money was actually the easy part. The hard part was, what do I do with the influence and power that has now been afforded me? Do I use it for my own benefit or do I use it to help serve others? And it was then that God led him to Psalm chapter 72. It's there that Solomon is praying a prayer for himself, yet there's a lot of language in it that is also prophetic of what the coming Messiah would be all about. And by default, then, what we as followers of the Messiah, followers of Jesus, should be all about as well. Solomon prays that his influence and wealth would be used to help the poor, the orphan, the widow, the weak, the blind, the lame. And then look what else he has to say. And, and this is so timely for our day. In Psalm chapter 72, verses 12 to 14, here's what Solomon writes. The king rescues the helpless when they cry out. He helps the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He will be kind to the weak and poor, and he will protect their lives. For those oppressed, he will save them from cruel and violent deaths. You know, Rick Warren's conclusion was that the purpose of influence and power is to be a difference maker for those who have no influence and power. Well, let me say that again. In fact, I have put it on your outline if you're taking notes. The purpose of influence and power is to be a difference maker for those who have no influence and power. Now, you know, obviously in light of all that's been happening in our country over the past month since the terrible and senseless death of George Floyd, this has been a topic of much debate and conversation throughout our country. And, you know, like most things anymore in our society, the whole conversation has become deeply, deeply politicized with people arguing over exactly whose life is it that matters and the semantics of words and phrases like white privilege and social justice. You know, instead of trying to figure out a solution to the problem of race and uh, racial inequality and and things like that, it it seems like most people are more interested in just simply winning a debate. Now, listen, I'm not saying that words and definitions don't matter. And I'm not here today to say that I have all the practical solutions that we should use and the next steps that we should be taking. But I do know that we have God's word and that instead of taking our cues from what culture is saying and how to deal with the problems, we need to turn to God's word instead. Which brings us then to Luke chapter 14, which is where we started at last week in the series called The Table. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at exactly who is it that matters to God and how does that play out in our modern times. 
So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there to Luke chapter 14, or even easier, you can click the little button here in the upper right-hand corner of your screen called Talk Notes, and there you'll have access to not only all the scriptures, but all the main points that I'm going to be making here today as well. Or if you're not watching this live with us, you can always go to our website, www.exponential.church, and under the Messages tab, you'll find a link there for today's message, and then within that link, you're going to have a tab there for the talk notes that you can access and fill in all the blanks, do everything. Now, as you continue to, to turn there, let me remind you of what we talked about last week. And Jesus was at this rich guy's dinner party, and he notices that the, the guests were always trying to angle their way into the best seats nearest to the host. And so Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, decides to tell a story in order to make a point. And his basic point was this. If you try to take a great seat for yourself, then you're going to be humble when you're told, oops, you're in the wrong seat. This one belongs to someone that's more important. So Jesus says, instead, take the lowest seat. And then later on, the host will come to you and say, friend, what are you doing way down here? Come on up to a, a higher seat of honor. And of course, the big point that we saw Jesus was making was this, that when it comes to who gets invited to God's table, to God's party, who gets invited to heaven, that invitation is open to all. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female or black or white, rich or poor, what nation you were born in. When it comes to Jesus' offer of salvation, all lives do matter because God created all of us. And Jesus died for all of us because all of us are equally sinners in need of God's grace. And so that's why I think you hear so many people in our society today say, wait a second, all lives matter. And again, from a sense of who matters to God and who did Jesus die for, that is true. However, what our African-American friends are saying is this. That when it comes to practical day-to-day -day living here in America, certainly doesn't seem like our lives matter as much as what white lives matter. So therefore, they say that black lives matter. And to that, they have a point. Because whether intentionally or unintentionally, and sometimes it has been blatant intentionality, we do live in a society that gives us as white people a head start in many areas of life. Now, again, we can debate the semantics of it all and to what degree has the system been set up, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to bring a form of oppression, if not just downright oppression, on our brothers and sisters who are born with a different skin color. But again, our job as followers of Jesus is to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Which brings us to the part of the story of Jesus that I actually skipped last week. You see, not only did Jesus see people jockeying for position at the table of who gets to sit where, but he also noticed that the only people this rich man had invited to the party were other rich people and people of great influence. So Luke 14, 12 to 14, here's what we read. Then Jesus said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends and family and relatives and rich neighbors. If you do, they'll invite you in return and you will be paid back. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. They cannot pay you back, but God will bless you and reward you when his people rise from death. Now, this had to be a tad awkward for Jesus to say this because he's saying it to the man in the midst of all these people. And he's going, why did you invite all these people? Now, of course, Jesus knew that the man had invited him because they would in turn invite him back to their parties. You see, much like in our day and time, this was a form of networking. You invite your rich, influential friends and someday they're going to invite you to their party. And maybe you'll make some connections there of their rich, influential friends. And it's going to help you to expand your own wealth and influence and power. Just keep the system going. And so Jesus knew this guy was just being shrewd. If he followed Jesus' advice, though, to invite the less fortunate or the oppressed, this would mean spending his own resources on people who wouldn't be able to pay him back. And he's like, I don't know about that. But you see, from a spiritual standpoint, isn't what we learned last week that that's what Jesus does for us? We are the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. We are the ones that Satan has tried to oppress. Yet Jesus invites us to his table. 
even though there's nothing we can do to repay him. And so again, if Jesus did that for us and we're supposed to be becoming more and more and more like him, shouldn't we in turn be doing that for other people? In other words, if we're the ones that have money or we're the ones that have power or influence, shouldn't we use that to make a difference for, the difference for those that don't have money or power or influence? Again, I'm sharing this message today in the context of a nation right now having a very serious debate over racial inequalities. But what I'm about to share has to do with any area that you find yourself with more influence or affluence than others. So with that in mind, let me ask you two questions here today for you to consider. The first question is metaphorical and the second question will be quite literal. So question number one, I wanna ask you today is this. If my life were depicted as a party, who would be the invited guests? You know, is your life just a series of calculated decisions and relationships that help advance you and bring value to your life? Or is your life a party that is bringing values to others, specifically people who can't pay you back? You see, what it means to follow Jesus is to give up your life, to give up your rights, and to take the gifts and the skills, the talents, the abilities, the influence, the affluence that he's given you, and bless other people with it, people who can't pay you back in any way. You know, one of the greatest examples that we have of this in Scripture is Moses, who was the prince of Egypt, yet he gave it all up to First become a shepherd and then later on lead the Jewish people out of slavery and oppression in Egypt and take them towards the promised land. You know, when Moses encountered God at the burning bush, one of the questions that God asked Moses is, Moses, what is it that you're holding in your hand? Obviously, God already knew what it was. It was a staff. But when God asks us a question, it's usually because it's something he wants to reveal something to us or about us. You see, for Moses, the staff in his hand represented his identity, who he was, a shepherd. It represented his affluence of how he made money and what he did for a living. And it represented his influence. You know, with his staff by hook or by crook, he could make a difference in where the sheep were going. And so the same question applies to you. What's in your hand? What is it that God has given you that in turn you can use to bless other people with, that you can make a difference when it comes to racial inequality or poverty or when it comes to orphans or widows or any of the other major areas where people feel like our society has left them behind? Let me give you a pretty obvious one. Something you have in your hand is your job. You know, when it comes to your job, do you see it primarily as a way to enrich yourself or to serve others? What skills has God given you that you can use to, to serve other people? Now, I know for some of you, it's pretty obvious because, you know, you're a carpenter. And so you're like, oh, I could go down and help with Habitats for Humanity. Or maybe you're in the healthcare industry and you're saying, okay, I could do like free clinics. Then there's others who are going, Gilbert, I'm a sales clerk, or I work at a warehouse moving boxes around all day. What in the world could I possibly do? Well, here's something very, very simple. Did you know that the, the Brookings Institute, which is a liberal think tank in D.C., did a very extensive study on what is it that keeps Americans, especially poor African-Americans, from joining the middle class? Which, you know, that's what a lot of African-Americans are saying is, what, what can we do to, to join where you guys are at? Well, the Brookings Institute came up with a, a report called Three Simple Rules That Teens Can Follow to Join the Middle Class. Here's rule number one, get a high school education. Number two, get a full-time job. And third, wait until at least 21 to get married and have children. Now, let me read to you some of their findings that they discovered as a result of this. They said, our research shows that of American adults who follow these three simple rules, only 2% are in poverty and nearly 75% have joined the middle class, defined as earning around $55,000 or more per year. There are surely influences other than these principles at play, but following them guides a young adult away from poverty and toward the middle class. Consider an example. 
Today, more than 40% of American children, including more than 70% of black children and 50% of Hispanic children are born outside of marriage. This unprecedented rate of non-marital births combined with the nation's high divorce rate means that around half of children will spend part of their childhood and for a considerable number of these, all of their childhood in a single parent family. As hard as single parents try to give their children a healthy home environment, children in female-headed families are four or more times as likely as children from married couple families to live in poverty. In turn, poverty is associated with a wide range of negative outcomes in children, including school dropout and out-of-wedlock births. So what can you do about it? Well, you can go into our local schools and volunteer, or you can tutor. Maybe you'll become a big brother or a big sister and help mentor a teen and steer them in the right direction. You know, maybe it'll be something else. You know, my point is, all of us have some sort of gift, skill, talent, or ability that we can use to serve other people. Obviously, then, another thing with your job is, what are you doing with the money that you earn? Now, I'm not saying here today that there's anything wrong with it, enjoying the fruits of your labor. But I also want to say that God didn't enable you to make money just so that you could have a, a brand new car and a brand new house and live in a nice neighborhood and have a life full of luxuries. Now, as you've heard me say many times in the past, you have been blessed in order to be a blessing to others. Don't throw the, the party and then just invite all of your rich friends to be a part of it. No, use your money to help support what the church is doing. Use your money to help solve racial injustices. Use your money to say, you know what? Poverty is going to end on our watch. So that's the first question. If my life were depicted as a party, who would be the invited guest? Here's the second question. Again, take this one literal. Number two, am I including outsiders at my dinner table? Let's just take Jesus' words here at face value. So when was the last time at your literal dinner table that you invited over to eat with you, the poor, the blind, the crippled, or the lame? When was the last time you invited someone to join you for dinner that is of a different race or a different nationality? Yeah, one of the books that I, I read during this whole time of quarantine was called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosario Butterfield. <laughs> She's an amazing, amazing lady. Rosario was a, a very liberal professor at Syracuse University. She was a, a practicing lesbian and feminist and was a leading writer and leader in the war on Christian culture. In fact, in 1997, she wrote an article slamming the Christian men's organization Promise Keepers, and it brought her a lot of notoriety. This led to a lot of fan mail and hate mail all at the same time. One letter, though, was different. Instead of slamming her for her beliefs, a Christian man by the name of Ken Smith and his wife Floyd invited her over to dinner so that she could share, okay, how did you come to the conclusions that you did? Interestingly enough, she accepted the invitation thinking, well, these two will just give me good fodder for a future article about how crazy Christians are. But something happened at that dinner. A real conversation took place, and one dinner led to another, and then another, and these dinners didn't always just include her. She said she was amazed by the Smith's hospitality, and she said, there are so many people coming into the Smith home, it's almost like there isn't even a front door to this place. And over a two-year period, she watched and modeled Jesus for her, and she picked up a Bible and started reading it, and then finally surrendered her whole life to Jesus. She got fired from her job. She left behind her old lifestyle. But she met a Christian man and got married, and they have four kids, two of which, by the way, are foster kids that they had adopted. And she writes at the beginning of the book these words, Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as a gift God uses for the furtherance of his kingdom. My prayer is that this book will help you let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community, gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. 
you know, in the book, she lays out what a typical week looks like for herself, at least five to seven days of a week. It involves her basically offering meals in her home almost every single day that includes neighbors, strangers, and outsiders. And she uses no social media other than the next door app so that she can always know what is it that's happening with her neighbors and be the first one there to offer help in any way she possibly can. She has literally helped to change the spiritual lives of hundreds of people through the years just simply by being a good neighbor. One of the things I found fascinating is that she does a great job of laying out the difference between, biblically speaking, what is the difference between fellowship and hospitality? Fellowship is what we as Christians are pretty good at. It's welcoming the insiders, other Christians around your table. In fact, Lisa and I were able to do that just this past week with Bill and Megan and Nate and Allison. I mean, we had a great time just interacting with one another and talking and laughing and dreaming for Exponential and, and what our city could possibly look like. But hospitality is different. It means welcoming in the stranger. In fact, if you want to get even more literal, it means a love of strangers. So this is what Jesus is talking about here in Luke 14. Don't just invite in your friends. Invite in the stranger. Invite in the single mom, the orphan, or the person with special needs. Invite in the guy that was just released from prison or have a foster child. You know, invite someone who's of a different skin color or, or maybe doesn't speak English as their first language. I know some of you are going, oh, no, 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 stranger danger. That's dangerous. We shouldn't do that. But you know what's even more dangerous? The real danger is the sin that grows in your heart when you live only a sheltered, safe, middle-class, self-centered lifestyle. You know, one of the reasons many of you are having such a hard time relating to the pain and the hurt of our African-American community is that you've never really stopped to listen to their stories of just how different life is for them here in America than it is for you. Now you're going, but Gilbert, I have black friends. Okay, great. I'm glad that you do. But when was the last time you actually had them over to your home for dinner? When was the last time you actually sat down for a serious conversation about how they've had experiences with racism and what their experience is like here in America? When was the last time you offered as a white person to help them do something about it? Now look, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you and I'm not even claiming I'm perfect at this, but the truth is we can do better. Let's have conversations with our African-American brothers and sisters so that they know that they're truly heard and that we're for them and, and not against them. Or let's invite some unbelievers in our homes, black or white, and, and show them the love of Jesus. Let's take Jesus' command seriously to invite the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame to come and eat with us because that's what it means to follow Jesus. You see, following Jesus isn't simply coming to church and dropping a couple bucks in the offering basket and memorizing a couple verses and cleaning myself up morally. Now, following Jesus means laying your life down in the love and service of others. It's taking whatever influence and affluence that you have and using it not selfishly, but selflessly. Now, I know some of you are going, Gilbert, this sounds pretty hard. I mean, I don't have a big budget. I don't have a nice home or Maybe I have a nice home, but man, there is cat fur everywhere. And I just simply wouldn't have the time to clean up. Or maybe some of you are going, Gilbert, I, I don't know how I would cook for everybody. But Rosario addresses all that in the book. Here, here's what she writes. We sometimes forget that the Christian life is a calling, not a performance. Hospitality is necessary whether you have cat hair on the couch or not. People will die of chronic loneliness sooner than they will cat hair in the soup. Now, my suggestion is, if you have a cat, just go ahead and get rid of it. I mean, nobody likes cats anyway. Seems simple enough, right? But if you're hard-hearted and you won't do something like that, then what she's saying is, don't let the pride of how clean your house is keep you from using it for the kingdom of God. Remember, the question to Moses was, Moses, what do you have in your hand? 
And in your case, what you have in your hand is a house or apartment that you can use to make a difference for God's kingdom. But Gilbert, I told you I don't have a lot of money. Well, guess what? It's okay. Rosario said that almost every single meal that she prepares is just soup and, you know, something out of the crock pot or, you know, coffee. Nothing glamorous. Because again, it's not about the food. It's not about the cleanliness of your house. It's all about Jesus. And besides, you know what? People don't need to see the polished, perfect airbrush version of you. They need to see the real you and how Jesus loves you and uses you in the midst of your mess so that they too can find hope in the midst of their own mess. Now, one last objection some of you may be having is, you know, I don't have time for this. In other words, you lack margin. Well, I did an entire message on this back on Mother's Day of this year, but let me again remind you that if you're just jamming one thing on your calendar after another and it all just benefits you and your kids and your life, then you're not living the design that God has for you. All of us need some of that breathing room, not only to relax and rejuvenate, but so that God can work through us in unexpected ways. Here's what Rosario says in the book. Practicing radically ordinary hospitality necessitates building margin time into the day, time where regular routines can be disrupted but not destroyed. This margin stays open for the Lord to fill, to take an older neighbor to the doctor, to babysit on the fly, to make room for a family displaced by flood or worldwide refugee crisis. Living out radically ordinary hospitality leaves us with plenty to share because we intentionally live below our means. Now, as I wrap up today, let me remind you that, yes, all people are invited to God's party. But when it comes to the party here on earth, and specifically in America, not everyone feels that they got an invite, or if they did get an invite, that they're relegated all the way into the back. But it's our job as followers of Jesus, as those with influence and some level of affluence, to make sure that we're inviting those that have become marginalized for whatever reason in our society. It's our job to be a voice for those who don't have a voice, to be an influence for those that don't have any influence. It's our job to be the hands and the feet and the mouth to and for every single person that we meet. And then as Jesus said in verse 14, then God will reward you and bless you for what you've done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. And, and Lord, we recognize that this is a difficult day and time that we live in. And this was even a, a difficult message for some to hear. Lord, first of all, we are so thankful that, yes, all people do matter to you because we're all created by you. And all of us, while we don't deserve your love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, all of us can accept that, no matter who we are, man or woman, boy or girl, rich or poor, black or white, no matter what country we are from, you died for everybody. Why? Because we're all sinners and we're all in need of your love and grace and mercy. Lord, again, we do recognize that in our country, whether it was intentionally done or unintentionally done, there are things that are holding people back that are of a different skin color. And so help us to use whatever influence and affluence that we have to make a difference in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our community, in our nation, and all around the world. Father, help us not to just turn a blind eye to it, but help us to, to realize that, Jesus, you're saying that it's our job to, to offer hospitality to anyone and everyone. To do that not only for unbelievers, people that don't yet know you, people that are marginalized in, in that way, but to also do it for those that are believers, our fellow brothers and, and sisters, African-American or Asian or Hispanic or of another nationality that, that we're all followers of Jesus together, but yet 
they still are being left behind. So help us to see what can we do as Exponential Church and what can we do as the Capital C Church to make a difference. Father, help it to be solutions that come from your word and not from our political backgrounds, not from our own thoughts or opinions, but truly to see what is your heart and, and how can we make a difference. Lord, we know that in every single area of life, your word leads us to the truth. And so help us to discover the truth in this matter. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.